0: Welcome to Scores and Pores, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Hangnails, crooked pictures, squeaky wheels, out of tune violins, sparkling wine flutes, eine kleine Nachtmusik. All of these things are annoying. Jill and I are talking about wines and music we find particularly irritating. In this episode of Scores and Pours, check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist, and do consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good day, Emily Reese. Hi, Jill Mott. You ready to roll your eyes today? Oh, man. I, every time I think about us recording this episode, I've been rolling my eyes.
1: I rolled my eyes at the pieces that Emily sent me, and Ooh. also this is the, probably, there are three times a year that I drink my eye roller that really? I brought with me. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to mention too, but I mean, yeah, this is maybe the world is full of predictability, right? And yeah. maybe that's why we roll our eyes at these, maybe because it's just, they're so overdone. Mm-hmm. Why Why did you choose your compositional eye rollers? Uh, Which if you haven't figured it out, we're talking about <laughs> things that make us roll our eyes today. Yeah. <laughs> Wines and
0: compositions. (laughs) And I'm still kind of surprised we're even doing this just because it meant that I had to look at and think about these pieces of music that I don't ever want to look at or think about. I I didn't really listen to much of any of them uh, just because I've heard them a billion times. And I'm going to talk about three pieces today. We'll hear just snippets of all because I promise you, you've heard these pieces. We're talking about Ride of the Valkyries by Richard Wagner. Ugh. We're talking about Mozart's Eine Kleine Nachtmusik. Just gross. Well,
1: and it's then, they're not okay. They're not <laughs> <laughs> when maybe when you hear it every when you hear it out there, you might think "Ugh, Yeah. Maybe Emily's gross is your ugh, yeah. again. It's not
0: gross, it's just
1: Ugh. It just is so bull. Mine, a lot of versions of what I brought, we could call gross. Okay. Because there's so much bad this planted around the world and made into wine.
0: Okay. What's the last one we're going to (laughs) hear? We're going to hear Pomp and Circumstance. March number one, by the way, there were five of them, six technically, but five that are complete and... Uh, the one that's uh, so famous and heard round the world at graduation ceremonies uh, is the first Pop and circumstance, March, yet only the uh, hymn part of it. We'll, we'll
1: talk about it. Yeah. So I brought a bottle of, drumroll please, Caber- <laughs> Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. I, I can't. Tell you how many and the reason that I chose that as my um, eye roller was I feel like at least twenty five percent of the time that I get asked for a recommendation and I say well what do you what do you like or what are you in the mood for I try to get something out of that person so I don't have to stab in the dark mm-hmm. they say you know how about something like a like a cab I'm in the mood for a cab can you recommend a good cab and I, I like I, I that wakes me up at night sometimes. Can I can you recommend a good cab? The best is when they, you know, and then the second one is, you know, I don't know, just a, a white, like you know, a Sauve Blanc. Sauve Blanc, the amount of times I've heard that coming out of a guest's lips, yeah, which isn't bad. I, I love Sauvignon Blanc, I don't drink it often because there's so many other grapes out there that interest me more. Um, but that's and there's Sauvignon Blanc is. Probably one of honestly the world's best, but also most bastardized grapes, mm. along with Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so I, that's why they're my eye rolls because I'm like, oh, again, yeah. why is it just? And I know it's because the reason that m- mine even approached the eye rolling department is um, so Cabernet is planted. I'll to start with Cabernet.
0: Yeah. What well, Ca- can I before we go there? What does the word Sauvignon mean?
1: Sauvignon comes from the word, the French word, and the Latin word um, for savage. Okay. Little savage. There's different things that okay. Sauvignon, I think, can mean, but I've read that it means like savage or little savage. Okay. Because um, it's
0: Cabernet Sauvignon and then Sauvignon Blanc.
1: And Sauvignon Blanc, so little, little white savage or something like yeah. that, is Sauvignon Blanc is actually one of the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Um. So that's where Sauvignon, part of this gets its name. Okay. The the red version. Okay. Um. But it's on every continent. grows on every continent other than Antarctica. Sure. So that it shows that it's kind of it's like a weed. Yeah. Takes to a lot of different a lot of different climates. Uh, As of two thousand seventeen, there were ninety thousand acres in California alone. (laughs) So, because Emily and I are recording from Minneapolis. Minneapolis is about 30 and change, okay. so almost three times of wow. the entirety of Minneapolis is just in California planted to <laughs> Cabernet. Wow. Now, we think about the world over, there are 840,000 acres, so that is the entire state of Rhode Island okay. and more, Okay, just to Cabernet. Okay, That's a lot of effing Cabernet yeah. to screw up. And, <laughs> and and when we look at the most expensive vineyard land, it's like if grapes are already planted, Cabernet is one of the most expensive, as is Pinot Noir. Why? Because you can make it for $8 and actually really that cost of that is probably like 50 cents. I mean you can make really bad and a lot of it Cabernet okay, and okay. make a fortune. Okay. Or you can make $5,000 Cabernet and do that. Wow. So there's just like Cabernet is just like a weed— it's a minefield to find good things. I've brought, of course, something delicious. Good. Because why not do yeah. that? Yeah. Um, but that's the reason why I think it's one of the reasons why I think it's an eye roller.
0: Yeah. It's just so common. It's commonality. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So should we just taste first? Should we? Well, where would you like to start musically?
1: Let's start with the second one you, you mentioned with Mozart's. Um, Ina Kleina. Yes, because okay. it was just so. <laughs> I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> and I wasn't expecting it. I, I've heard this a hundred times at least. Yeah. And I feel like I've the name has crossed my path, but I didn't know when you wrote this. I was like, I "Oh, I want uh, wh- yeah. which one is this." Yeah. So yeah, let's listen to that.
0: So as su- so so your experience, if I could recap, was you've heard the melody a million times, you've heard the piece, but you didn't know, like when I was like, Ina Klein and Ack Music, you weren't like, oh, that one. No. Until you hit play. Yep. And then you're like, oh
1: God, that one. And because it's, uh, in the the piece that's actually four movements, it's the first movement, it's the Allegro. Mm -hmm. I think if I would have listened to the, First movement, and it was not the one you wanted to feature. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, well, this isn't such an eye roller. What's wrong with this?" Like when yeah. you listen to the the Romance and Dante, etc., that's all like it's you know it's great. It's yeah, yeah, not so well known.
0: Yeah, but I you could almost argue that all of those movements are recognizable, sure. which is interesting, but not, but not as right. Nothing as recognizable as the first movement. So uh, the the nice thing too about well, let's listen to it and, and get out co- some complaints about it, and then we'll, then we'll talk about why it's actually a really cool piece of music. But. <laughs> um, this, though, by the way, is known as a, a string serenade. Mozart wrote several of these, and it's just, you know, so that just means it's written for just string players. And this one, I think, is number 13. 14? 13? I can't remember. You're
1: right. It's 13.
0: Okay. Ugh.
1: So tell me what's going through your head, ER. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like,
0: what? Which movie is using this now? To just
1: which commercial?
0: Yeah, what commercial? What? I mean, it's just like, is are this eating Doritos always have to be the piece? Does this always have to be the piece? Are you driving a Subaru?
1: Yeah. You're eating Doritos. It's. You're using Crest toothpaste. <laughs> like it could just be for so many things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's lost meaning through its ubiquity in media. You know, it's it's tarnished its reputation, in my opinion, and it's unfortunate because it's a really great piece of music. And
1: amongst amongst a lot of wine folk, I would say Cabernet has is very similar. Like that, yeah. Because you could vote, you know, a lot of people could argue that Cabernet has some of the longest, like, the highest longevity in the world in terms of cellaring. Yeah. That's well, it's not really true when you actually go and taste stuff that's made now. You're like, that's not going to last like things that were made in yeah. the 50s and taste great in the 90s because they were totally, climate was different, people were making wine differently. Yeah. So do you feel that's the same with all these pieces, that they have lost their meaning because they're so... Definitely. ubiquitously used? Yeah,
0: I think, I think um, we look at the Elgar, for instance, when we get there... The only part that people know is oh. the Land of Hope and Glory part, which is the part that's used for commencement. People don't know the actual march part. They only know that trio part. Mm-hmm. And so when you know the march, the march part is awesome. I love the march. And you don't hear it very often at all in um, when you hear Pomp and Circumstance, March number one. Uh, and, and so that, to me, kind of proves that point. It's like the march part... Part's great because you never hear it. And so when you hear that, it's like, oh, well, that's really great. But then you get to the commencement part, the hymn, the trio. There are lots of things we could call it, the land of hope and glory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just like, oh, my God. And we've all been to commencements where they play that for like an hour and a half. Yeah. or so. I mean, it's ridiculous. On repeat.
1: Yeah. Well, so back to the Ina Kleina was – did Mozart ever see this performed in his lifetime? Was it, because was it, it, was, it was published posthumously, right?
0: Yeah, it was published, actually, the year Beethoven died. It was published in 1827, which is like 30 years or more, almost 40 years after Mozart died. Um, it's possible that the premiere, there was some kind of private premiere. Nobody really knows why this one was written. There's no record of a commission for this one, which most, like his serenades were always commissioned. So... And then when it was published, it was just his money-grabbing widow trying. To <laughs> just oh, they were such a mess, those two. Um, <laughs> so it's possible that he saw he did. It, you know, it could have happened, and we just don't have a record of it. But okay, yeah. But so, this is one of those pieces that can be played by, you know, a really small ensemble, or it can be played by a full orchestra. So
1: and do you have a? a preferred way that you've heard it? Never again.
0: That would be my preferred way, (laughs) would be to never hear it again. But you
1: you did say, you did mention before, you said, but I would like to talk about why it's so great. Oh, Why is it so great? It's quite beautifully and
0: perfectly constructed. The first movement is a really perfect example of sonata form. So if you're trying to help someone learn what the first movement of... Well, if you're trying to help someone learn just what sonata form is, this is a great example because it's very cut and dry. It's very short. Uh, The development section is very short. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's very easy to be like, here's the exposition, here's the development, here's the recapitulation, you know, um, and so that, and and all the movements work that there's two rondos in this as well, the second movement and the fourth movement. And so you can also very easily teach someone what a rondo is by using this music. It's very, sh- you know, the movements are short mm-hmm. and simple and easy to digest and easy to hear. And just as all of Mozart's music, it's just perfectly
1: constructed. But in the most annoying way, I and, just don't. Even. And all, mostly major keys, right? Yeah. Most, so it's oh, it seems like you know it's very peppy and very yeah, like, light s- and very Mozart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he wasn't a
0: huge minor key user, but when he did, it was significant. I mean, there, yeah. Hmm. But not this one. So yeah.
1: Well, Anna Kleiner. Anna <laughs> Kleina. We we love to love you and love to roll our eyes at you. Yes. I guess at the same time. Yeah. drink some Cabernet, shall we? Yes,
0: please, please.
1: So um, Cabernet, you know, I talked about how much it actually um, is, how many acres are planted in California there. It actually covers 10% of all vineyard area in the United States, which doesn't sound like a lot. No, it does. But when you think (laughs) of like Texas has a lot of vineyards. New York has a lot of vineyards. Oregon, even here in Minnesota, we've got, you know, a substantial amount for not being a big wine producing Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. area. So a lot of Cabernet is grown around the world. Like I said, um, Cabernet, the parentage, is the two grapes, Cabernet Franc, which is where it gets its first part of its name, Cabernet, and then Sauvignon Blanc, so Cabernet Sauvignon. And they think that it happened by a chance mutation in Somewhere around Bordeaux or southwestern France okay, um, in the 17th century. That can't be proven, but that's, you know, when, when you're looking back at records and when the first drawings, writings, things like that happen, that's as far back as we can go. So I brought a producer that I really would like to mention because I, he is one of the few that I think is making Cabernet Sauvignon in a way that is natural and doesn't taste like every other industrialized or expensive lathered and new oak, vanilla, big-bodied Cabernet out there. So, uh, this is from Chris Brockway, that is the owner and winemaker at Brock Cellars, and every year an importer called Selection Massale chooses a wine or a winemaker to make a a wine called Le Clairet, which is like a, Le Clairet is like a, a red wine. And it used to be based off of or is based off of Cabernet, um, but there's a lot of different meanings for claret, so I won't go down that rat hole. A great red wine at a decent price that is um, reminiscent of like a claret or red wine that you could drink every day. And they selected Chris Brockway two years in a row because it was so successful last year. Um, So this is the 2017 La Clarette that is from just east of Napa and so northeast of Oakland in the Solano County. Uh, The Green Valley is the name of the kind of the sub-region there. And... What's cool about it is give it a smell Emily what do you think? Usually people will tell you that Cabernet smells like green pepper and cigar and all these like vegetal dark fruit aromas and what do you smell when you smell this Cabernet? I literally smell grape juice like concord grape juice. Yeah, so there's an element to a lot of Cabernets that depending on your canopy management, like how much thinning of the leaves are you doing during the growing cycle, Okay. if you're harvesting too early so that your phenols, your, your what is elaborating possible future flavor development, if you're harvesting too early, that's you're catching elements in like a green phase as opposed to having them a bit more fruity. But then you could go too far. And if you're too early, there's there are a lot of people, if you mention Cabernet, even to sommeliers, they'd say, oh, yeah, Cabernet's got these notes of, like, cigar, dark plum, all these dark fruits, dark currant, uh, currant leaf is a very popular descriptor, and so is, like, bell pepper, and a lot of these vegetative signs or signatures come from something called um we we kind of shorten it in the wine business and call it pyrazines but um they're methoxy pyrazines and that's very common in both cabernet franc and sauvignon blanc the parents so they okay. gifted the the offspring with that okay but it ends up making a wine have this like i don't know it just gets a little bit too far away from grape juice especially if you're putting industrial yeast in there and mm-hmm. um I just love how, you know, a lot of times Cabernets are heavy in alcohol. They're 14-plus percent. Wow. And this is 13. Okay. And it's from California, and it tastes like effing grapes.
0: Discours and pours.
1: Discours and pours and crisp rockway. <laughs> Yum. Right? hmm Usually Cabernet is also uh, people either soak oak chips if they don't have the money or don't want to invest in oak. Mm-hmm or they will put it in a lot of new wood to give it a lot of tannin and a lot of vanilla tones to it which can make a good a decent wine but all of that is not making it age worthy if you put a lot of makeup on me when i'm 90 i might not look good you know what i mean it doesn't <laughs> so if you make a, a wine very tannic and you put it in a lot of oak that doesn't mean and it's very full bodied that doesn't mean it's going to last the long haul like Cabernet's used to last back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and now people are drinking them and going, wow, these Bordeaux's, they age so well. I'm going to stick a lot of Bordeaux's from the 2018 vintage in my cellar for 35 years. It's like, (laughs) don't do that. They're not going to taste. Everything is, climate has changed. The way people are harvesting and making wine has changed, so that's a little off topic. but Yeah. um, So there's Cabernet Franc. Yes. That's a grape. Correct. That we've tasted a couple times on the show. Yep.
0: So when somebody walks in and says, I want a cab, that's not what they're talking about. No, they're, they're always talking about a Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes. Okay. I,
1: I would say 99% of the time they're talking about, because Cabernet Sauvignon is much more prolifically planted. And, okay. And in people, the world of wine where people don't know a lot of wine, but they know what they like kind of thing, they're drinking Cab Sauv, not Cab Franc. So-
0: Cabernet Sauvignon itself is a grape that was uh, married between the two sometime in the 1700s. It was
1: a it was an offspring of the two. Offspring
0: of the two. Yep. In the seven. Okay.
1: Seventeenth to eighteenth century. Okay, yeah. okay. So they're not they're not 100 percent 100 percent sure. But should we? Yeah. Ricard Wagner.
0: Do you want a Wagner? All
1: Let's right. Wagner. Let's
0: Wagner. Um, two things that are very important to say about Wagner right off the bat. Uh, One, absolute genius. Two, I don't like his music. I just never have been a huge Wagner fan. The end. Wagner people come at me, don't even care.
1: Does that have to do with his past? Um, Partially that influences it's sort of like I could taste a great wine, but if the winemaker's a dink, I'm going to be like, (laughs) well, the wine, I can admit the wine is brilliant, but I don't like it Because I can't separate that person from, okay.
0: That is a huge part of it. But also his music is just notoriously thick uh, and uh, heavy. It's like eating the richest uh, fondue or maybe uh, Alfredo just for four hours straight with no break. Nothing resolves. Everybody's committing suicide on stage. Like, I'm just not, it's just not my thing. People devote their lives to Wagner. People devote their lives to the four operas that this opera comes from. They devote their lives, they'll devote their lives to one of those operas. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Hmm. It's like a whole thing. This particular tune, Ride of the Valkyries, comes uh, from the second of four operas in what's known as The Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner. Uh, the ring cycle is about 15 hours worth of opera, almost never performed as such, almost always performed one night after the next, so like four nights in a row. The first one's the shortest and is kind of considered like a prelude. And then uh, the second one, the Valkyrie, that's where Rite of the Valkyries comes from. And the, the theme that you hear, bum-bum-ba-dum-bum, bum bum ba bum bum, bum bum that's known as the Valkyrie motif, Valkyrie light motif, which is a whole other Wagner thing that hopefully we'll talk about someday, because it's really cool. Um, but anyway, let's listen to a little bit of this. It's the prelude to Act 3, I believe. When you hear this, there's a bunch of, like, lady warriors coming back from battle, which is kind of cool. So here's a little bit of of the Valkyries.
1: Are so already over it. <laughs> I'm over it. The thing is, it's and it's the most recognizable, right, of every part of that opera. Oh God, this yeah. is and wasn't there of some, all
0: four operas. So, this is probably the most famous part.
1: Wasn't there something where he people wanted him to perform it separate, and at the yeah. beginning he was like, "That's just not gonna He's happen." He's like, "No, you can't do that." And then he. You know, he then agreed later on to do it however many years after. But Perhaps, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I,
0: I mean, it, it is worth saying, just in case you, you've you never heard of Richard Wagner, just a super crash course on him. Um, uh, musically speaking, he was uh, obsessed with Beethoven. Uh, he came much later than Beethoven. Uh, Wagner was born in 1813, so Beethoven was still alive. But uh, not for very long. and Wagner wouldn't have been aware of him really, probably that young. Um, and Wagner was particularly obsessed with Beethoven, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is a symphony where Beethoven combines a choir with the orchestra. Wagner that was like the pinnacle of all music would be to marry you know a huge choir with a huge orchestra and just like all the music happening all at once and so that's kind of what rich alfredo rich alfredo yeah okay and uh with no wine to cut it just let's Let's even be fair there. Yeah. It's
1: like we're not we don't even get to drink wine on the side. No, it's
0: just as rich and as heavy. You get a glass of heavy whipping cream on yeah, the
1: side. Exactly. Okay.
0: And whole milk yep. to cheers with. Yeah. Uh,
1: my worst nightmare, by the
0: way. What ended up happening with Wagner is he was a fairly well documented anti Semitic fella. Wasn't happy with what he perceived as Jewish composers getting more attention than him. And he kind of implies, although does not outright say more or less that he wishes there weren't Jewish people around to compete against in so many words. He doesn't say let's annihilate the Jewish race or culture or people. He doesn't say that. But he kind of hints at maybe that that would be part of a solution to something. And so in that way, he was a reprehensible human being. But then what ended up happening in the early part of the 20th century is that the Nazi party kind of appropriated his music. And and Wagner was gone by now. He's dead. But the Nazi party really kind of embraced Wagner and his music. And Hitler loved Wagner. And so then that association got to be a thing. But it's not like Wagner was a Nazi. You know what I mean? He was just an asshole. So that's kind of some of the history there with trying to separate the man from the music. I mean, this is definitely yep. a pretty horrible man who went to great lengths to kind of like squash careers of certain Jewish composers and uh, things along those lines. So, you know, not a great dude. Uh, wrote a lot of great music that um, I'm sure if I liked, I would have a lot more difficult time, you know, okay. not listening to. But yeah, if it wasn't seen, al- if it's it not wasn't my Alfredo cup of tea. and Yeah, it's just not my cup of tea, that's all.
1: I have never heard all four operas. Not, of course, not back-to-back, but yeah. I've never attended. Okay. And I think I would, I would like to, just to know what that's like. But I, I can't say I've heard enough Wagner to say that I like his music or don't like his music. What you and I have talked about and what I've listened to on my own, I mean, there's no denying that he had a brilliance about his mind and composition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the deeper I get into researching him as well, it's just hard to separate that yeah. when, you're, when you're listening to music. And there's a winemaker who I won't, of course, mention his name, but um, he's in the Loire Valley and everybody loves his wine and I have a really hard time uh, supporting his wine. I can, of course, say, yes, the wine itself, the way if I can separate the man mm-hmm. from the wine, of, of course, it's great, but let's not, let's not make the show... Yeah. All about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I but I'm, will glad, say, we I'm yeah, glad we mentioned it. Yeah, and,
0: and I will say again, you know, what Wagner did uh, with those four operas, you know, nobody's done anything like that. Nobody, I mean, it was an incredible lifelong vision that he had, more or less, and he created something that's amazing. I mean, the... The reason people like there are theorists that can devote their lives to the the ring cycle. I mean, it's that involved. And he sketched out all these little themes called leitmotifs that mean things throughout all four operas. I mean, it's really remarkable, genius things. And and there are people who may have conceived of things like that, but could never have pulled them off because they didn't have his you know musical talent. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. It's just. Not my thing.
1: So Cabernet has quite thick skins to it, okay. which makes it a very tannic grape varietal. It also has a kind of a smaller ratio of, of juice to skin ratio. Like the pips and the skins dominate, you know, a, a portion of the program where a lot of times a lot of grapes have more flesh. So you're left with a grape that has. A lot of, it can have a lot of acidity, depending on when it's harvested, and can be quite tannic, both important for aging. I wanted to go back to this because I, I do think that Cabernet, when I've had older versions, we'll say from the 80s and back, I notice that when I'm fortunate enough to have those experiences, there are some definitely that are better than others, but I'm flabbergasted that wines can taste so great from, we'll say the earliest cab I think I've had is from the 1930s. Damn. And then all the way up to, you know, the ones that I think have tasted good, 82, 85, 86. Mm -hmm. And then once you get much past that, you can tell that there's a change in tastes. You know, a a couple popular writers were actually changing wine consumers' taste through a point system saying like, I like these wines when they're full-bodied and when they're big and sweet and blah, 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 blah. And people started to say, "Oh, well, I want now I want a 100-point cab for 1599 <laughs> And that made it a, a grand shift not only for those wines that were 1599 but for those wines that were $1,599. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And um, people were harvesting a lot later to get these really ripe flavors, high alcohol wines, that honestly they were so full-bodied that when people tasted them, they were undrinkable. And they said in their notes, cellar this, drink now through 2095. And you were like, (laughs) that's not going to happen. There's not enough structure to last the long haul. It's sort of like when you bolt out of the gate for a marathon and you're running 6 minute mile yeah. you're not going to last 26 miles and so with cabernet you notice that when things are when grapes are picked later they just didn't have the structure and nowadays you have more and more folks trying to harvest earlier in order to preserve the freshness of the wine they're not necessarily lathering it in a lot of new oak people are doing it in concrete People are doing it in older oak to be able to retain kind of the, the grapiness, the essence of it, Mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. when you taste really well grown organic Cabernet or biodynamically grown Cabernet off the vine, it tastes nothing like green bell pepper and all that stuff. So did you know that Cabernet was grown in the Gobi desert? There's, I know it's just everywhere. That's incredible. (laughs) There's Cabernet in India. Wow. Do we need that? I don't know. Maybe. I'd love to try it. Uh, I I want to try some gobi desert cab, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, it's it, that stuff is really fun. It's really fun to be able to try them, but then when you say, "Wow, I really want two glasses of this," it's like it's like drinking alfredo sauce. Yeah. We'll just say that. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that's coming to you from about this wine? Like as you go tasting it more and more, mm-hmm. do you like it more? Do you like it less? I love that it's not tiresome. That's yeah. one thing that I'm, I
0: I love this wine. It I it's I would say for what I expected, it, it's not very tannic at all. It's definitely got tannin for sure, but I don't think it's like heavy tannin.
1: No, no, not and, at all.
0: And I love how just um, grapey it, it tastes. I love that. You know, it just literally reminds me of like grape juice when, that we would get for communion when I was a kid.
1: I'd be curious to know if there's any whole cluster fermentation for those of you who've listened to one of our terms earlier episodes on terms mm-hmm. and we talked about whole cluster versus non-whole cluster fermentation. Yeah. Um there wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if there was a small the smallest element of that here because mm-hmm. there are components that are kind of lifted and just ever so slightly floral. Like I wonder mm-hmm. if that's part of it, if it's not then that's great too, but um mm-hmm. he just did a really good job of maintaining picking early enough to have acidity there and refreshment, um but not too late. So a quick note about Sauvignon Blanc, because another eye roller.
0: Okay, that's the white one.
1: Okay. It's the white one. So there are definitely not as much like acreage dedicated to Sauvignon Blanc as there is to Cabernet. Because that's because
0: everybody wants more red wine than white wine anyway.
1: Yeah, there was a time where that was a thing, like red wine is healthier, which is it totally depends on how things are made, right? Of course. But Sauvignon Blanc has increased its vineyard acreage in the last 20-some years 40 fold. It's ridiculous. There are more than 35% of all New Zealand plantings, which is like one of the main stays of New Zealand wines, is dedicated to Sauvignon Blanc. Wow. There's just so when I hear someone come in and so thankful that they come into the shop I work at or the restaurants that I'm working at and they're like, So yeah, I love a wine and can you recommend a glass of Sauvignon Blanc? I'm like, God, do you really? it's do you really want missionary position again (laughs) like it's just the grape is beautiful the grape is awesome but i know that what most people are asking me for is a rendition that is very industrial in its production um and i as much as i can respect that and have a glass on occasion with friends or family or with seafood and not bat an eye at it i it's it's Quite industrial in how it's made. Wow. Um, and a lot of people are using yeasts that are in a packet that make Sauve Blanc taste passion fruity, grapefruity. They accentuate those vegetative notes so that so that when we're drinking it, it's kind of like adult health fruit juice. You know, it's like very fruity and it's yeah. in a way that Sauve Blanc off the vine kind of tastes a little bit like that. As you go through fermentation, aging, bottling, you're going to lose some of that. It's not going to be more than it was when it was on the vine. So like, <laughs> I don't know. So that's just a quick little, yeah, a little eye roller, as it were.
0: Uh, yeah. I'd like to try that, um, have a, a yummy
1: Sauvignon Blanc sometimes. Sometime. I, I was going to say at the beginning of this, I apologize for my ranting. No. This is the, probably the only episode you're going to hear me rant well, but I mean, I think it's kind of fun because you and I, I think, are pretty PC on the show, yeah. democratic on the show. Think of Sauve Blanc, yeah, like McDonald's. Okay, not bad, right? Whatever. McDonald's well, is it's found everywhere. Yeah, when you go on your family vacations, it'll be there. It'll be there. And is it going to be predictable? Yeah, it's going to be predictable. Yeah. Is it going to be inexpensive? It's going to be inexpensive. Mm-hmm. All things that are good to think about when you're on a family vacation. Mm -hmm. I think that what the thing that makes me eye roll is like when I I just I wish that the better examples were in the hands of the homies. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, we're we're gonna do more eye roller episodes for sure. I mean, so we'll by popular
1: you. by popular demand, actually, because when I told someone, they said, "What are you recording today?" and I said, "Eye rollers," and they laughed. They said, "Oh, what are you guys focusing on?" and I, I hummed, do 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 and they were like, "Oh Jesus, that's what they said." And then I said, "And we'll be tasting Cabernet." They were like, "Oh God,"
0: it was like it was kind of
1: hilarious that a friend's not in wine. Or music. Or thought that, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm just, you know, constantly thinking about all the things I didn't talk about, you know, like uh, one of the ones we just chose, we're definitely not going to play is Pachelbel's Canon. Like, yeah, we're not doing that. I
1: I was like, I won't attend our record. You'll be recording alone. Yeah. You do Pachelbel's (laughs) Canon.
0: Pachelbel's Canon. And then there's certain choral music from uh, the last 20 years that. Really makes you roll your eyes. You're like, yeah, okay, all right. Of course, you love that composer. Everybody.
1: Speaking of rolling eyes, let's Elgar.
0: Let's Elgar. This one's fun, though, because, like I was saying before, part of this piece I really love because it's great. Uh, So, Elgar wrote uh, a bunch of these marches over the course of his life. Um, English composer, right? Yep. He's a British fella. uh, Born in 1857, died in 1934. And his first two pomp and circumstance marches he wrote in 1901, uh, he wrote one in 1904, 1907, 1930, and then there's sketches left behind of a sixth. The first pomp and circumstance march became a thing uh, when it was used at a graduation ceremony at Yale University where Elgar was as a guest of honor to receive an honorary doctorate of music. And so the guy who taught the music program at Yale was like, we're going to play this Pomp and Circumstance March Number 1 because it had been really uh, well-received in the years that it had been published.
1: Because it was it was written in 1901 and then premiered yeah. in Yale in 1905, right? 1905. Was, became popular yep, there. Yeah, 1905
0: was the first graduation ceremony it was used at.
1: And also is it is it safe to say that the reason that this is became so popular – as, like, graduation music, um, honorary music, and also very symbolic of, like, you know, we're talking about the land of hope and glory, like mm-hmm. war-like music, because it was pre the tragedies and the the grand tragedy that was the Great War, World yeah. War I. yeah And so it was kind of glamorizing going to war mm-hmm. and battle yeah. and, you know, being patriotic yeah. in a way that, After that, people realize, like, obviously that's a great service, but but it also comes with so much... Like, it's not that grandiose as the music may make it sound like it is. Yeah,
0: it really was, and has been, and still is in a lot of ways, quite a famous British anthem. It's a really important piece of music for people in that country, you know? It's part of the proms every year. The proms are a big classical music ceremony, or ceremony, celebration that happened over the summer and... written and yeah let's listen to some of it the 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 first part is the part you're not gonna know part you nobody knows never need to hear this again. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's worth not having kids, so you don't have to go to graduation and hear this.
1: (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Okay, well, one thing I want to say that is actually in contrast to that is I... Do want to keep tasting Cabernet to find versions like th- this version? Like yeah. I never need to hear that again, and I'm I don't live in the world of classical music. You yeah. do, and yeah. you never need to hear this again. Yeah. Because how is someone unless they maybe do it in a way like someone gonna perform it in like a Lizzo way, a Smiths way? Like Even who's then, gonna like?
0: I don't want to hear that.
1: <laughs> I don't okay, hear that. that's fair. That's fair. Emily's <laughs> like pour me some more Cabernet. Out of the three of them, I think the one that was the most eye roller that I don't ever need to hear again was Ride of the Valkyries only because it's just so, it reminds me of like a USPS commercial or something during yeah. a Super Bowl. Like, I just don't need to hear that. Yeah. Um, I, but I like how um, Ina Kleine and Pomp and Circumstance or the Land of Hope and Glory, I like how they fit into a larger puzzle or picture where if someone's listening to it, On classical radio or whatever, and they hear the first part of it, they may stay tuned in, Mm -hmm. whether it's Mozart, to like hear what's next, what it's a part of. Yeah. Or in the case of Elgar, you hear the first part and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's from that? I didn't know that. And that might propel you to actually listen to more Elgar. Yeah. You know, so I could, yeah, I could see that, but I, yeah, Ride of the Valkyries, with the exception of just, you know, someday I would, if I, could see all four operas four nights in a row, I would probably do that just to know what it's like. Yep. Would I leave saying I loved it? I don't know. Who knows? Probably, honestly.
0: It's, I've also never had that experience, and I bet it's pretty amazing.
1: I don't know. All I know is I don't like to cut my wine with a knife and fork because it's just I I like when things are uh, have something to say but are refreshing, and yeah, I, I don't mind if they're hard to understand because I think that that's different. Than being able to choke it down, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, so I don't know, maybe you share similar sentiments with your eye rollers slash classical music yeah. that I do with uh, my wine. Yeah. To that, I say to scores and pours, ER. To scores and pours, gentlemen.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 18 of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpores, and we're on Instagram at Scores and Pores. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpores. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media, Inc. I know it. I can't help it. Oh, Brunhilda,
1: be my wife. Do you really want missionary position again?